0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report on Tube City Online Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. The Consumer Review Report is heard Sundays at 4 p.m., Tuesdays at 6 p.m., and Thursday at 9 a.m. However, if you cannot get to listen to the Schedually scheduled shows, <laughs> scheduled, regularly scheduled shows, <laughs> you can listen to podcasts of these shows, Then they are available on wmck.fm slash crr, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker, and I'm pretty sure a few more podcast uh, carriers as well. So, just so you know, you don't have to listen to the regularly scheduled shows, but If you can, that's great, but if you can't, they are available, the podcasts are available for you to listen anytime you want. Now, if you have any ideas of any products or services you would love to hear on the show, you can email me at ConsumerReviewReport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at ConsumerReviewReport and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport Also, if you have any comments or questions about anything you've heard on the show, any shows actually, if you listen to the podcast and you have any questions or comments about that particular product that was discussed, you can also email me at ConsumerReviewReport at uh, gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at ConsumerReviewReport and Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. All right. So this week, I thought we would discuss just, um, the way that the, uh, economics are in this day and age. Everybody's talking about shortages here, shortages there, inflation here, you know, so I thought, well, we will discuss a little bit about that because the Wall Street Journal has been coming out with videos, uh, about all about that, <clears throat> you know, uh, about inflation, about, um, you know, how dark stores are speeding up grocery store deliveries uh, because of the shortages that you might find in the grocery stores, Um, how chip shortage is forcing automakers to adapt, and why your Uber or Lyft rides are so expensive. So they've been coming out with all kinds of videos last week. And I thought, you know what, so that we have an understanding of what's going on in the economy at this time, uh, I would share those with you. Now, Consumer Report Magazine came out with their October issue. And so they had uh, an article, and it's actually a pretty big article because tell you how to save money on this and that and the other thing, you know, uh, trying to navigate your way through this economy. Uh, So one of the excerpts I took out of it was how to be a smarter shopper right now with inflation and product shortages. And then, uh, you know, then if you're heading out to a store, a brick and mortar store, uh, what's different? Um, so we'll be explaining that. I'll be sharing that article with you from the Consumer uh, Report magazine. And then, uh, how do you find products faster when shopping online? That was a good one that I thought, you know, sh- shopping online, what's different? So what's different about shopping online? What's shopping? Uh, what's different about shopping in a brick And mortar store, uh, you know, in these uh, strange economic times. I mean, I can't remember a time, and maybe, you know, I wasn't all that involved or whatnot, but I don't remember a time when people were ready to spend money, had money to spend, yet they had nothing to spend their money on, right? That's what they're talking about when they're talking about shortages. Everybody wants to spend their money, they have money to spend, but you know, uh, even housing, housing is difficult to get, buying cars is difficult to get, so it's a strange economic time as far as I'm concerned. Now, maybe other people have lived through times like that, uh, and so if you have, email me at consumerreviewreport@gmail.com at and tell me when you remember there was a time when everybody was flush with money, but... There was nothing to spend it on, right? All right, so let's get to our first audio piece from a video that was posted by the Wall Street Journal. It's called "What What Why what, <laughs> what One Winemakers' Pricing Decisions Tell Us About Inflation," and uh, you know, inflation is going up. I, I know you've noticed probably at Walmart prices there have been rising, and <laughs> Also, things have been difficult to find on the shelves, too. Yes, like I said, it's strange economic ties, but go ahead, let's go ahead and listen to what one winemaker's pricing decisions tell us about inflation. So let's take a listen.
1: Naturally, in the wine industry, we have good years, we have bad years. Last year, we had the fires, major fires here in California, and Napa Valley. And then this is the second year of drought. So it's been rough just from that aspect. It is certainly difficult times. Not only we have labor shortages, but at the same time, there, there's scarcity of supply and there is an abundance of demand.
2: Business owners like winemaker Malik Amrani are facing three main pressures on how they price their products high demand, rising costs of labor, and rising costs of supplies. Whether Amrani and others like him absorb these costs or pass them on to consumers determines the course of inflation in the U.S. economy.
3: The U.S. economy is made up of literally hundreds of millions of individual workers, businesses, and employers. And inflation is really the output of what all those hundreds of millions of people simultaneously are deciding in the transactions with each other and their own decisions.
2: These decisions have big consequences for business owners. Eating the rising costs they're facing could destroy their profit margin, but passing them on could drive customers away.
1: So this is the equivalent of a glass of wine. The Vice Wine is a mid-sized Napa Valley winery. We produce about 25,000 cases a year. Typically we are a little bit under what the typical price point for Napa Valley wine will be. The house tier, we are between $22 and $33 bucks. For our single vineyard reserve tier, that starts at $38 and it goes all the way up to $69.
2: Like many businesses right now, Amrani says he's experiencing strong demand for his product. But he's facing a lot of obstacles to meet that demand
1: we are in a perfect storm where kind of all the elements, things that we never had to worry about are becoming really difficult to source. It's been very hard to uh, source labor since the start of pandemic. It's kind of getting harder this year. The $15 minimum wage really kind of doesn't apply to Napa because we've been paying here $20 to $22 pre-pandemic. And now, since we can't find labor, we are in the upper 20s to lower 30s just for basic vineyard labor or cellar labor.
2: Glass has been particularly difficult to source.
1: I will say generic glass mold that used to take me a text message, maybe a phone call or an email to order, now it takes me 20 to 40 hours on average to find. I have so many of them wine glass suppliers, it's like, you gotta be talking to 12 people all the friggin' time.
0: Thank you for calling West Coast Bottles. How
1: are you? Hey, I'm good, Cynthia, how you been? What is it like? I don't have any good news for you today. Oh, shoot. (laughs) How much are you selling this wine for? Um, you know, for the cab, we're 29, 29 bucks. And then when I do find the glass, after spending a long time looking for it, then I'm paying 30 to 50% more. Bringing a container out of China of glass, a year ago would be somewhere around 3000 to $4,000. Today we're north of twelve to $15,000. She wouldn't even tell me the price on the phone. That's how bad it is. I wouldn't be surprised if she doubles the price. And she's saying it's all because of the shipping. Even cardboard is being hard to source. I didn't expect that the cardboard would be an issue, especially generic craft cardboard that doesn't have anything printed on it. The prices dramatically went up, no less than 50% in some instances. The only thing that may help ease uh, the difficulties on the supply chain is uh, lower demand. And I really don't see the demand slowing down anytime soon.
3: So we know that a big part of the inflation process is psychological prices, uh, inflation will partly depend on what people think it will be. So think of a business that's facing an increase in its costs. He can either decide, all right, these higher costs are here to stay, and I'm going to raise the price for my customers, or he can decide, you know, I've got a pretty good sense of this is a temporary disruption, and those costs are going back a year from now. If I raise my prices now, I'm going to lose market share, and it'll be for nothing because those costs will go down a year from now. So.
1: He's got to
3: make that call.
1: We're absolutely trying to swallow the cost and um, just deal with it. Uh, But because it's not a 5% or 2% or or 10% inflation, in many cases, it's 40% up, it will certainly have consequences when it comes to um, price increases. Our brand was born on the idea of making Napa Valley accessible for that everyday occasion. If we are forced to raise the prices in the house here, it's almost like we're uh, in a different territory, appealing to a different consumer. A lot of our fans at the Vice Wine, I can see them remaining loyal to us, but for others, they may just not be able to afford that price increase, and they may look at other regions besides Napa Valley, maybe go to a different wine regions, or even international wines versus the local wines.
0: All right. And that is just the wine industry. Now take all their woes and their complaints and apply them to any uh, business that's trying to sell something. They are all going through the same thing. They can't find anything. And when they do, the prices are astronomical. So they have to raise the prices for the consumer. So this is the cycle that we find ourselves in, not just in the wine industry, but also every other industry that sells to the consumer. So again, Consumer Report Magazine in the October 2021 issue that just came out, they had an article, How to Be a Smarter Shopper Right Now with Inflation and Product Shortages. If you're in the mood to spend, you're not alone. In the first half of 2021, we saw a return of optimism in spending, says Tamara Charm, who works for the global management consulting firm McKinsey as an agile consumer insights leader. And yet, the way we're buying reflects the many long-term changes brought on by the pandemic. E-commerce sales long on the upswing jumped 32% in 2020, more than double the growth rate in 2019, according to the market research firm, Mintel. Even as shoppers venture back into walk-in stores now that vaccines have eased restrictions, online sales remain strong. The experience of having nearly everything delivered to one's door has probably changed some shopping habits for good. In a February 2021 Consumer Reports nationally representative survey of more than 2,500 Americans, more than three-quarters... 76% said that shopping is a better experience today because the internet makes it easier to get whatever I want whenever I want it. It's hard to argue with convenience. And I agree. I <clears throat> I always felt that way even before the uh pandemic when I discovered Amazon and I couldn't I didn't have to leave the house to get whatever I needed, and that even uh, came to, like, toilet paper and paper towels and things like that. I mean, it's really convenient when you don't have to spend time to go to the store, pick it up, pay for it, bring it home, put it away. It just shows up at your door. You bring it in. You put it away. You go on to the next thing you have to do. I mean, it's just incredible how convenient it is. All right, so the article goes on to say... People are generally still working from home at least part of the time and have more flexibility to order online and be home for deliveries, says Greg Dacco, chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. But despite the convenience factor or the enthusiasm for going into stores again, the process of shopping, whether it's for a Halloween costume or an outdoor fire pit comes with new complications due to price inflation, product shortages, and shipping delays. Plus, the endless options available online can make it difficult to find just what you need. The best way to shop today depends on what you're buying, what you want to spend, and when you need it. So, there you go. Um uh you know, uh, It's a strange, strange time. I know I keep saying that, but I just can't even remember uh, ever having these uh, problems, you know, economically, I guess you could say. Um, So uh, the Wall Street Journal came out with a video, and we'll hear audio on that. <clears throat> it's called How Dark Stores Are Speeding Up Grocery Store Deliveries. Now, a dark, a dark store, if you don't already know, is a large retail facility that resembles a conventional supermarket or other store, but is not open to the public housing goods used to fulfill orders placed online. All right, so we're going to see how they are speeding up grocery store deliveries. So let's take a listen. The
4: race to deliver your groceries faster is speeding up. Demand for delivery services boomed during the pandemic and startups in the U.S. and Europe are now promising to deliver items in as little as 10 minutes.
5: So instead of you walk into the grocery and all that, we're the ones that do that for you.
4: So how can they do so quickly, something that often takes hours or even days? They're operating out of hyper-localized dark stores or mini warehouses scattered around cities.
1: I really think of it as a store that the customer just doesn't see and what they see is the app.
4: Guerrillas is one of those startups that launched last year. It already has dark stores in a fleet of delivery workers in 40 European cities and in New York. Investment in ultra-fast grocery services leapt several fold in the first six months of 2021. But super fast delivery means high operational costs in a sector that's already crowded with established players. And some analysts and experts are skeptical about whether they can make money. I don't see how it can be profitable.
6: There is this big overarching question of, is this a sustainable business model? And with this level of competition, what does the future look like?
4: We visited dog stores in London to see how these startups are pushing to deliver groceries in minutes and the long-term challenges their businesses face. While many delivery companies operate out of big warehouses or team up with supermarkets, dark stores are small and localized, occupying between 2,000 and 5,000 square feet to carry fewer products. To use the service, a customer places an order through the app on their phone. Staff at the dog store receive the order and quickly begin picking items which are laid out in a way that speeds up the packing process, like grouping heavier items near each other so they can be packed first and won't squash fresh produce.
3: If you're a pickpacker in the warehouse, you hardly have to think and you're simply
7: going around because everything is organized and under control through systems, etc. And that allows you to be be very speedy basically. And then we come to you in minutes.
4: Alec Dent, CEO of UK-based Weezy, says close proximity to customers is the main reason apps like Wheezy and Gorillas can deliver so quickly. Most dark stores are usually within a one to two mile radius from households they deliver to. Grocery delivery sales have slowed since a peak during lockdowns last year, when online ordering became a habit for many people. This crisis
6: accelerated grocery e-commerce and this kind of gave us a chance, like a fast start chance.
4: And Gorilla says it still sees high demand for deliveries even as economies reopen.
1: Last year was just a crazy time. I think so it's difficult to say that this year is the same. But from a consumer's preference and choice point of view, they still order as frequently as they did before.
4: Gorillaz has amassed about 860,000 downloads worldwide on Google Play since its launch in May last year.
6: It's another way of reducing traffic in stoves with time. I'm sure it might be the only thing
5: happening later on.
6: COVID has shown a light into traffic patterns and how people move and where they go for groceries and what people expect in terms of convenience. And a lot of these consumer behaviors aren't going away.
4: The last mile delivery sector raised $16.2 billion in venture capital funding in the first half of 2021. Our
6: timing and our growth was super, super to the point and it attracted multiple investors.
4: As of mid 2021, gorillas had raised nearly $350 million in venture capital funding. Philadelphia-based GoPuff, which already has more than 400 dark stores across the U.S., had received $2.4 billion. But retail industry experts like Phil Lemper cautioned cautioned that the initial influx of investment isn't always a sure sign of long-term success.
3: Venture capital firms uh, want to invest in food. They love food. Whatever the idea is, if you can combine food and convenience, they're going to throw money at it. Doesn't mean it's going to last.
4: These companies say that in the future, they hope to make money from bigger orders. But analysts warn that the growing competition on top of labor and transportation costs could hinder profitability.
6: The core challenge, in my opinion, of ultra-fast delivery or rapid delivery, is that it's fundamentally a very capital intensive industry. It's a little bit of a departure from the Uber Eats, DoorDash software intermediary model.
1: Every time you want to open a warehouse, it's a new real estate lease that we're signing or a team that we're building or inventory that we're buying. And so I think a lot of our money and our capital goes towards that.
4: Companies like DoorDash in the US and Deliveroo in the UK, already known for their restaurant delivery services, have also partnered with large supermarket chains to bring customers grocery items in minutes. And competition is only growing. Bigger players like online grocery giant Instacart are also planning to build out their own fulfillment centers and launch ultra-fast services.
3: Grubhub and Deliveroo, uh, their business model is different. Their
4: revenue is coming from various
3: sources versus these startups like Gorilla and so on, where I don't know where their revenue is coming from.
6: The key question for me is can these companies maintain their sort of pricing power as they face increasingly robust competition from others? You need to build a sustainable business model that's curated for local markets that can stand on its own once the VC money
0: dries out. all right so there you go um i i don't know of any of these grocery delivery uh, businesses around here locally uh maybe instacart would be one of those um, or maybe amazon has some kind of uh, delivery service of groceries or whatnot all I know is I know Walmart was de- delivering groceries and they still might be. So I don't know if they would be considered, you know, one of these uh, dark stores that, um, you know, help facilitate uh, grocery store deliveries. But I don't know. I don't know what's around here. All right. So moving on, is uh, we're still on the article Consumer Report magazine uh, came out with uh, in in their October 2021 issue, How to Be a Smarter Shopper Right Now with Inflation and Product Shortages, it's, uh, they had a kind of a mini article, Heading Out to a Store. What's different? So what's different about heading out to a brick and mortar store? Walk-in stores today don't look quite the same as they did in 2019. Thousands didn't make it through the pandemic. At those that have survived, you can expect not only ubiquitous hand sanitizing stations, but also potentially fewer salespeople due to the post-pandemic labor crunch. The service that you find in a store right now might not be what you were accustomed to pre-pandemic, says Audrey Guskey, Ph.D. and Associate Professor of Marketing at Duquesne University and an expert on consumer trends. Depending on what you're purchasing, you might also find less available stock. Supply chain shortages in semiconductors, electronics, lumber, and foam affect many categories including laptops and furniture. So here's a a shop and store strategically tip. Beyond the appeal of retail therapy, an afternoon spent with a friend hitting favorite shops and coffee spots at the mall or strolling down Main Street, there are certain times when a physical store is the best place to find what you need. So, number one, when comfort is key, that's when you'll want to go into a brick and mortar store. And we've always said that on this show. About, uh, you know, you want to actually try out a piece of furniture, right? You just don't want to say, oh, that looks comfortable in the picture and have one set to your house, right? So, when comfort is key, if you'll spend a lot of time sitting or lying on a piece of furniture, like a sofa or a mattress, it's worth heading to a store to try before you buy. Ditto for anything where ergonomics are important, like a keyboard, fitness equipment, and musical instruments. With clothing, it's an it depends situation. You can find just about anything online and it's usually easy to return. But if fit is really important, say for running shoes or evening wear, you might want the help of a store associate or the convenience of in-house tailoring. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten... uh, What what did I just get recently that... Oh yeah, (laughs) I got two pairs of pants. And I got them in my usual size, but when they got to me, uh, they were not my usual size. They're probably one or two size smaller. So, yeah, I mean, it's hit or miss, I guess, if you order online. So it's probably better for clothes if you can try them on in the store rather than going through the rigmarole of, you know, having to find out they don't fit and then having to send them back. And then maybe choosing another size larger and having them sent to you. So it's probably better to shop for clothes in a brick-and-mortar store. All right, so here's the number two reason why you should probably shop in a brick-and-mortar store If color or scale really matter, computer screens and photography can distort the way colors appear and make it difficult to judge size. So if you really want to make sure a new rug will match your curtains or that a new chair doesn't dwarf your side table, you might want to see it in person, especially if it's something large and difficult to return, and measure your space and existing furnishings before you go. Now, one thing I can say about shopping online is that they do put the dimensions of something on there. So you could pretty much get a handle on what size is the item that you're purchasing. So that might be able to help you. But as far as color, yeah, I mean, they might have a point there. I mean, the photograph may not look exactly the way it looks in person, so... All right, and here's the number number three reason to shop in a walk-in store, because you want a curated selection. Going to a store with a limited number of carefully chosen options can help simplify your choices, and the owner or an experienced salesperson of a specialty shop may be able to offer advice for your specific needs. Now, here is the thing: I don't especially want a limited number because usually whatever it is in that limited number of options is not anything that i needed or wanted so that's kind of why i go online because i just plug it into google and there it is that's what what i need and that's what i want but when you go in these stores i mean you gotta kind of pick whatever they offer you or nothing Uh, so i don't really think that that's an option but You know, I I don't think that's a good reason to go into a walk-in store, but they say it is. Uh, Consumer magazine, Consumer Report magazine, says it's a viable reason, but I don't think that. Okay, so they they had these um, little things at the end. It's called sticky situations. So. Uh, they, I guess, tell, you know, what could be um, not so good about a walk-in store. So here's one sticky situation. Stores often offer a discount on your first purchase if you sign up for their credit card at checkout. Is that a good way to save? And I guess these are consumer questions and and then Consumer Report Magazine will answer it can be a good way to save, just know that retail cards are also typically uh, also typically have higher interest rates, lower credit limits and lower rewards than general interest cards, says Kimberly Palmer, a personal finance expert with Nerd Wallet. Before you sign up, do the math to see if the discount is worth it. Also, applying will typically generate a hard inquiry on your credit report, which can temporarily hurt your credit score. And then here's another (coughs) sticky situation um, question from a consumer. I saw the TV I wanted at an electronics store in the mall, but I found it for less online from a different retailer. Is it a no-brainer to order it online? Here's how Consumer Report Magazine answered that. First, check that lower online price. Note the shipping costs and return policy and see what's included, like unboxing or basic setup. Then ask the store if it can match the online price. If it can't, you'll have to weigh price versus supporting an independent retailer retailer that may offer benefits like individual advice and a curated selection, if not rock-bottom prices. So, they continue to say, retail giants like Amazon, Kmart, and Walmart now host third-party or marketplace sellers, independent retailers who often have their own shipping and return policies that may differ from those of the main platform. Uh, And then they say, uh, fake reviews have proliferated everywhere, and even the search process has become less than straightforward. They also say, keep in mind that items labeled sponsored mean that a company paid to get its products listed at the top of the results page. And the Amazon choice label, another example, doesn't mean that someone from Amazon reviewed it, but rather that an algorithm found it ranked well in terms of reviewing pricing and availability to ship quickly. So, all of these things, I suppose, and then this is this is what they're saying, shopping online and what's different, uh, you know, from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. They're saying that, um, it, it, I guess, retail giants like Amazon, Kmart, and Walmart now host third party or marketplace sellers and independent retailers who often have their own shipping and return policies that may differ from those of the main platform. I mean... I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know if they're talking about little stores, offshoots from Amazon, Kmart, and Walmart. I don't know. But they also do have a point about the fake reviews. I mean, um, you have to be... uh, That's usually how you shopped for online stuff before, right? You check out the reviews, make sure there was more people that liked it that didn't, and you checked out why the people didn't like it or why the people did like it and come to your decision about whether that would help you so but the fake reviews everywhere are making that hard and even the search process has become less than straightforward so you know you have to be careful I guess online now but here is how you can find products faster when shopping online number one use your tabs Try what Julie Ramhold, a consumer analyst, does. Type an item into your search engine. Then click through to one of the retailers that comes up. Find the product you like best and keep that page open. Go to the new tab and repeat the process at another retailer. That way you can compare. Number two on how to find products faster when shopping online. Filter for your needs. Retailers typically have a side or top panel where you can choose to limit your search by factors like brand, size, color, and average customer review rating. And then here's the third way you can help, uh, which will help you find products faster when shopping online. Set a timer if you're prone to decision paralysis. if you can't make a decision, let's put it like that. If you are, if you find it hard to make a decision. Bob Sullivan, author of Gotcha Capitalism, suggests setting a timer to go off a few minutes after you started searching. Just stopping and doing something else can help you make a choice, he says. Coping with customer service, many retailers now use artificial intelligence customer service chatbots essentially robots with whom you can instant message for assistance and there also have been live chats which i have been really getting a kick out of because um i don't like calling people and yeah you know, the email you have to wait for them to email you back and then You know, you have to go back and forth and then they end up telling you, well, you have to call anyway. So I've really been getting a real kick out of these live chats that they have and have been pretty successful in solving any problem that uh, can come along. (laughs) Also, I found another um, uh, feature, I guess, of these live chats is that they will request to see your screen. Uh, You know, if you're having problems with the website or something like that, they will say, okay, can I see your screen? And you allow them to do so. And then they look to see, you know, what could be wrong. So that's uh, that's pretty interesting (laughs) because, you know, I, I think you could get problems solved a lot quicker through this way, you know? I mean, they won't let you go on the live chat until they've solved your problem, really. So... It's pretty interesting about these live chats. I really enjoy doing that instead of trying to talk to somebody on a phone, you know, or something like that. So anyways, uh, the uh, article goes on to say, "If you'd rather talk to a person, ask the chat bot for a phone number and you can, that you can call, or check the website Get Human." an online directory with customer service guides and phone numbers for thousands of national and international companies. If that's not getting you anywhere, switch to social media, but that doesn't mean publicly airing your grievance. Direct messaging a company's social media account is often the quickest path to a response. Always be sure you understand the shipping and return policies before you buy, including the return window, whether you need a receipt or proof of purchase, and if you'll have to pay a restocking fee. Boy, I remember the first time I ever heard of a restocking fee. It made me livid because, you know, I could return this, but I opened the box... You know to see if it was suited for my needs it was I don't even remember what it was now but it was something electronic and I uh, bought it from one of the electronic stores <clears throat> I think they since went out of business but you know I re- go to return it and then they want half of the money for a restocking fee it was I was totally flabbergasted when I I was like, and it was because I opened the box. If I had never opened the box, there would be no restocking fee. But how do I know if this item was what I needed if I couldn't open the box? So you're kind of in a spot, right? So you got to be careful and figure out if you'll have to pay a restocking fee when you return something. Now don't assume that third-party sellers have the same return and shipping policies as the main site. Look for the sold by label on the item you're buying and check through to the seller's storefront to check its policies. And also read customer reviews for the seller and the products it offers. Tread carefully if there's a lot of negative feedback. So okay so I think I know now what They were talking about uh, when they were saying retail giants like Amazon, Kmart, and Walmart now host third-party or marketplace sellers, independent retailers who often have their own shipping and return policies. They may differ from those of the main platforms. Now I know what they were talking about. I guess, uh, you know, say somebody wants to sell something on Amazon and they go ahead and they pay Amazon a fee to sell their stuff, I guess. Depending on, it could be a percentage of their sales or whatnot. And that's what they're talking about, third-party or marketplace, that they don't represent Amazon or Kmart or Walmart. They represent themselves. And so you have to be careful because Amazon, Kmart, and Walmart um, can't help you with your return policies. I guess that's what they're saying. You have to go through these third parties and figure out what their return policy is if you have to return something. So... Oh, I get what they were saying. <laughs> All right. So, here is a question from a consumer regarding online shopping. I need a new kitchen range. I don't want to buy the wrong thing, but I'm worried about COVID-19 and I'm limited uh, limiting time in stores. Should I buy a new one online? All right, what is the answer? Drumroll please. <laughs> If you're picking a similar model from a reliable brand, see our, well, they say CR ratings at cr.org ranges one to one. Uh, buying online makes sense. If you're considering a new type, say an induction model when you've always had gas, you might want to see it and get personal advice. Some independent retailers also offer repair service, which could help down the line. Yeah, I agree with that. Like <clears throat> if you were if you were going to um change the type from gas to induction and maybe you don't even know if you have the hookups to do that. I mean, I don't know what you what you would need. Like just a plug. Do you need a 220 plug to run an induction model oven? Yeah. So you would probably have to ask uh you know, uh, someone at the store, what they thought about that. So, I get that. Eh, so, there you go. Unless they have a really good description in the, um, you know, how they have uh, on Amazon, let's say. They ha- they have the product and then you scroll down and they have specifications and uh, descriptions. And unless they really have a good description about that, then I would think that you would probably want to order something like that in a store where you can get advice. But then, of course, there's salespeople too in the stores and they just might want to sell you whatever they want to sell you. You know, maybe not the best thing for you, but whatever the best thing for their pocket is. So... I guess it's a fine line and how do you trust, you know, that the salesperson is going to sell you something that is good for you rather than their their pocketbook. Right? All right. Now, so that's uh, shopping in walk-in stores and shopping online. That's uh, what's changed pre-pandemic and post-pandemic about that. And also things to look out for and things to facilitate your shopping experience as well. Now, we've been talking about how there's all kinds of shortages and inflation and, you know, you go to a store and there's nothing there. Well, cars are no different. They've been having trouble finding parts for cars. And so the Wall Street Journal posted a video and we will hear audio on that and it's called how the chip shortage is forcing automakers to adapt so if you've been out there car shopping but you have been having trouble car shopping this is maybe how the automakers are trying to make it easier for you to find a car so let's take a listen
4: cars today are far more complex than ever before They need anywhere from several hundred semiconductors to more than a thousand. And these chips control everything from the ignition to the braking system and making sure your seat is in the perfect position as you drive.
7: Individual chips, they're packaged inside these electronic control units. They sort of act as almost like separate organs that have a different function in the human body. They basically tell the hardware what to do electronically.
4: But now automakers can't source the semiconductors fast enough and many cars are sitting in parking lots waiting for chips. Because during the pandemic, chips for vehicles were diverted to meet a surge in demand for electronics as people were stuck at home. And their availability has become tighter also because of natural disasters that disrupted the supply chain and the resurgence of COVID cases in important chip-making regions this crunch could cost global automakers around $110 billion in revenue this year.
7: This crisis has really forced automakers to kind of rethink, both in the short term and the long term, how they they manage their, their chips and their supply chain.
4: So here's how companies are adjusting their production plans and what that means the next time you want to drive a car off the lot. One of the first solutions when you don't have enough of something, try to use less. So, some automakers are dropping features that require chips.
7: They're sort of small add on features. Uh, I think people have been willing to um, overlook that.
4: Some car dealers in the US said the global auto company Stellantis, which owns Jeep, Ram, and other brands, ships some pickup trucks without an electronic detection system, which looks out for blind spots. In another example, GM said it was building some full size pickup trucks without software that helps manage fuel consumption. And Elon Musk said that Tesla was removing the adjustable lumbar support from the front passenger seat of some vehicles due to major industry-wide supply chain pressure.
7: It hasn't been a big hit sort of reputationally uh, or from a market share standpoint that they've been kind of forced to take that step.
4: For instance, Stellantis reported more than $89 billion in net revenue in the first half of this year, while General Motors had a strong second quarter with $2.8 billion in net profit. But automakers have had to make some tough choices, like choosing between vehicles.
7: Car companies are all trying to figure out what prioritize what they want to make and what can be sacrificed.
4: For instance, General Motors said it's been shifting computer chips away from its less profitable vehicles and using them in its more popular ones. But even with diverting inventory, there's no guarantee that there will be enough chips for the vehicles that have been prioritized.
7: When they may not have one of the chips that they need, they'll continue to build those vehicles and then they're setting them aside in parking lots around the factory and waiting for chips to arrive.
4: This is what some in the industry called the build shy strategy.
7: The good part about that strategy is it it allows them to keep the factory running because it's costly to keep turning off and turning back on your factory
4: but this can mean chipless cars end up sitting on the lot for an indefinite amount of time. Ford said that at the end of March, it had more than 20,000 vehicles parked and waiting for chips.
7: GM over the summer, they said they had 30,000 pickup trucks at a plant in Missouri.
4: While these strategies have helped companies to keep going in the short term, it's also forced them to plan for the future by rethinking the entire process.
7: For decades, the auto industry has really kind of perfected this just-in-time model where components arrive at the factory and even right at the assembly line uh, just as they're needed that allows them to lower their inventory costs and there's a lot of efficiencies that go with that
4: but the chip shortage has shown this model breaks down during a global crisis like the pandemic
7: companies are looking at moving to stockpiling really crucial computer chips there's been direct outreach from you know auto executives to chip suppliers, which you know, hadn't been happening in the past.
4: And auto companies not only want more visibility in the supply chain, but also more direct control.
7: Some of the companies have talked about even getting more involved in designing their own chips, designing components to need fewer chips. I know Ford specifically has talked about that.
4: This is infrastructure. There's also a big push from the U.S. government to shore up its own domestic chip-making capacity. The Biden administration has said it would prioritize increasing domestic chip manufacturing by investing roughly $50 billion toward research and development. But building new foundries and increasing chip production will take years, and that means automakers will likely continue to scale back production. In early September, GM said it's temporarily idling two main factories that produce its pickup trucks, while Ford said it's temporarily halting the production of its F-150 at its Kansas City factory in Missouri. Even some of the more chip ready automakers like Toyota said it would cut production in Japan by 40% in September. And in the short run, all this won't be good news for customers.
7: There just simply aren't enough cars. Usually Americans want to drive off in a car that day and that's not happening nearly to the same degree as it normally has.
0: All right. So if you were out there trying to shop for a car and you're having trouble finding one, then there you go. That's what's going on. And a lot of these features, I mean, would you want to buy a pickup truck or something that eliminated one of those features because they couldn't find a chip? Uh, You know, well, they say, well, it's not a popular feature, but perhaps it is. They just want to keep selling vehicles and just say, Hey, it's not a popular feature. We're not going to offer that anymore. Here's a pickup truck without that feature. And do you want to settle for that? So, so if you don't want to settle for that and you just can't find a vehicle to buy, maybe you've been getting around in Uber or Lyft, uh, ride. <laughs> so here is another wall street journal video. Uh, that was posted last week, why your Uber and Lyft rides are so expensive. So let's take a listen to that.
8: In January 2020, say an Uber ride from New York City's John F. Kennedy Airport to Midtown Manhattan costs about $50. Today, based on the average price rise of Uber rides, that same trip could be $75, about a 50% jump. You may have noticed this too. According to data from Rakuten Intelligence, the average Uber and Lyft fare in the U.S. rose month to month, from February through July, breaking records each time. In July 2021, consumers paid over 50% more per ride compared with January 2020. All
9: these customers are complaining that they are actually paying more for their ride.
8: The biggest factor that's driving prices up has to do with the pandemic. But prices were slowly beginning to rise even before the pandemic.
5: To all the viewers seeing this, don't expect dirt cheap prices the way that we had before the pandemic.
8: Here's why your Uber and Lyft rides are going through the roof, and why they might not ever come all the way back down to where they once were.
9: Ride prices are higher for customers right now, especially during the pandemic, because there is that shortage of drivers and increased demand.
8: Harry Kempel, an Uber and Lyft driver, runs a popular blog called Rideshare Guy.
9: Drivers, like many others, had a huge um, impact by the pandemic. And I think really what we saw at the start was demand for ride hail really just fell off the cliff.
8: In early 2020, bookings for Uber rides declined 75% as Americans hunkered down for the pandemic. As states have opened back up, the demand for rides has returned faster than the supply of drivers, resulting in price hikes in many cities across the U.S. Experts say that prices are taking a while to return to normal for a few reasons.
9: I think the number one factor why drivers haven't come back to Uber and Lyft and why we're seeing this shortage on the supply side still to this day is because of unemployment insurance.
8: Some states are still paying unemployment benefits, but in states that have stopped benefits, Uber and Lyft are seeing drivers return and prices go down.
5: Uber has said that they've seen uh, prices come down in places like Miami, Houston, and Atlanta whereas big cities like New York, San Francisco, and LA, prices are still high there because drivers haven't returned.
8: Uber said 90% of the 90,000 inactive drivers they surveyed in June indicated they planned to return by September when unemployment benefits expire in most states. Another factor keeping prices up? Rideshare companies aren't just competing for drivers amongst themselves. They're also competing with food delivery services, which drivers say offer safer work conditions.
9: Actually traditionally, uh, driving for hire has always been a pretty dangerous job. You really don't know who's getting into your car at all times. I mean, I think the CDC recommendation was to stay six feet away from people, and as soon as someone gets into your car, they're breaking that rule. So a lot of gig workers have switched over to delivery services and found that they
8: liked it. Riders, on the other hand, are back on the road in droves. As rider demand has increased, both Uber and Lyft increased driver bonuses earlier this year to attract more drivers back to the platform. In April, Uber announced it was allocating $250 million in an effort to boost driver availability. Lyft spent $572 million on driver incentives through the second quarter of 2021. For now, these incentives seem to be working. According to Lyft, more drivers are coming back to the platform in recent months. As drivers return to their roads, Uber and Lyft hope that prices will stabilize, but they'll probably never be as cheap as they typically were in the last decade. There are a few reasons for this. For one, Uber and Lyft have begun phasing out discounts to riders even before the pandemic.
5: What started happening before the pandemic is that pressure started to build from investors. Investors started saying, you have to have a sustainable model to future profits.
8: Uber and Lyft have been using a subsidy model since the very beginning and that model is fairly simple. Startups raise venture capital and use those funds to attract customers with deep discounts. These subsidies could come in many forms, from low shipping rates for e-commerce sites to coupons for free food delivery. For ride hailing companies like Uber and Lyft, subsidies have involved attracting riders with big discounts, and then incentivizing drivers to provide those rides. But in recent years, the companies have begun phasing out those rider discounts
5: they are not profitable companies. They lose money nearly every year. We don't know when they will turn a net profit.
8: For now, rideshare companies are still offering drivers incentives as a way of making driving more attractive for the long haul, given the ongoing challenges. However, Uber said that their driver numbers have increased to a point where they'll be pulling back on driver incentives moving forward. The company's near-term challenge is keeping drivers after that
9: the bonus pay every single week might be 30% of a driver's pay. So you could imagine that if they completely got rid of these bonuses one day and drivers saw their pay cut by 30%, you'd have a huge exodus of drivers at a time where the companies are already struggling to match supply and match demand.
8: So companies are thinking of new ways to make driving more attractive.
5: One of the things that Uber began doing is that it started offering free uh, online language classes for drivers. The company says, you know, a lot of their drivers are immigrants. Uh, English is not their first language. So this could be a tool that they could use to move up the ladder and develop new skills.
8: Also adding to the cost of rides, when regulatory changes like Prop 22 went into effect in late 2020, companies shifted some of the financial burden to customers.
5: If consumers want uh, better benefits for drivers, then we should also be willing to pay slightly more.
8: Both Uber and Lyft are focusing more on long-term profits. Analysts say consumers should expect to pay more per ride compared to the discounted rates before the pandemic
9: think that they probably weren't paying, you know, the full cost of the fare in a lot of these situations and kind of getting a good deal. Riders may have to pay a little bit more for their rides and they may not like it, but hopefully they'll find solace in the fact that, uh, you know, drivers, um, you know, are getting, uh, you know, part of that ride.
8: For consumers, rideshare prices probably will not stay at their current heights. However, you probably won't see those low subsidized prices again anytime soon.
0: are. This is the world we live in right now. And uh, hopefully uh, it'll make a turnaround, uh, especially if we get more labor into the market, hopefully. But that is the end of our show. So if you have any questions or, uh, you know, you just want to know more information about what you just heard here on the show. You can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So if you have any questions or comments, you can get in touch with me and I will get in touch with you with an answer. All right, so this is the Consumer Review Report on Tube City Online Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. Heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at 6 p.m., and Thursday at 9 a.m. But if you can't catch our regularly scheduled show, you can catch the podcasts, and they are available on CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. I'm Diane Rebecca wishing everyone a safe and good week.